Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Once again, to Americans watching the footy, we are just done with round two. We're doing something a little different this week. I'm Ethan Castle. I'm Benjamin Castle. Normally, our round recap comes, you know, two to three days after the round ends. We're trying to get into a habit of pushing it out a day or two after, but this time we're actually recording it not even an hour after the conclusion of the final game of round two, which was between Fremantle and St. Kilda. Once again, we are right next to each other, and we'd love to give you a long-winded intro, but there's so much to jump into this week, and we're trying to keep this thing as concise as possible without glossing over anything, so that's just not a good idea. So, first off, Benjamin, what are your biggest takeaways from round two? My biggest takeaways, well, they started in the first game with just how amazing Carlton's midfield can be, with Patrick Cripps and Sam Walsh leading the way, even with Chera being out. Carlson's ability there allowed Cripps to move forward more, and that just kind of got them into the flow for the whole contest. For other matches, obviously we'll get to, you know, the big single moment of the round being something we may never see again, the fan invasion after Buddy Franklin kicked his thousandth goal. Thankfully, Ethan, it was at a point where the contest had already been decided, just not the way you had wanted Yes, we are going to get into that. We're also going to make sure not to ignore the rest of the game because there was a pretty interesting game to break down. I thought it was largely a dub from the Cats, but a lot of correctable errors. We'll also get into what happened with the rest of the round. Some pretty compelling games Saturday and Sunday. We're going to bring in two new metrics, the Are You Screwdometer, to measure how screwed teams are. We're going to use that to evaluate three of the four teams that made the finals last year but have started 0-2. That might be a record. Four finals teams starting 0-2. Definitely hasn't happened in a while. And we also have the legitometer to measure how legit teams are. And we're going to use that on the three teams with new coaches that are all 2-0. But before we get into the actual game recaps, I do want to explain the New Jersey radio show Gambling Parlay completely flopped. First off, I should never have trusted Adelaide on the road. That was a fugazi. North Melbourne against West Coast was a wash because at the time we knew they were missing maybe four guys, not 12. And it ended up being 14, spoiler alert. And then Fremantle just kind of shit the bed. As we get into this round, I think that the two biggest losers were Fremantle and GWS, not Port Adelaide, actually. I think GWS took a much bigger hit this round. And when we discuss injury circumstances and things like that, it'll all come into picture. You may not agree, but at least hear me out. I think I've got a compelling argument. And as always, we'd love to have your engagement. So anytime you have an opinion, you think we're spot on, we brought up a point you didn't consider, or you think we're dead wrong, 
and you saw the game completely differently, let us know. You can reach out to us at any time on Twitter at AmericansFuddy. Individually, I am on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Ethan is at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. K-A-S-S-E-L Media. Also, Ethan's cat, Brian, is not in the room right now, but he's probably just roaming about the house having a good time. You can follow him on Instagram at catnamedgrian. Speaking of Brian, because this deserves to break from all the sequence stuff because it's so much more important than anything else that happened in the round, Brian Myers had a sort of rehab appearance in the VFL this week. Two goals, 18 disposals, could be back in the lineup next round versus Collingwood. But that's more to be talked about during the round three preview. Right now, this is the round two recap. And thank you to those of you who have already reached out. Nick Lee at Commander Raven on Twitter seems to have been spot on with saying that we've been a bit harsh on the Saints. We'll get into that a good deal later because that was the last contest of the round. But of course, we're going to start with the first and we're going to end up breaking out both the Are You Screwdometer and the Legitometer for this one because it was Western Bulldogs 13-12-90, defeated by Carlton 16-6-102. Where to start with this one, Ethan? Well, from the start, it was kind of the same thing we saw last week down the stretch when they played Richmond. Carlton picked up right where they left off with just tremendous speed, especially from the midfield. And it looks like something that might not just be a one-off fluke. This might be something really sustainable. And remember, they were without Adam Chera round two, but Sam Walsh slotted in as well as he ever has. And that allowed Patrick Cripps to work his magic moving forward. He's got six votes in the bag through two rounds pretty easily, I'd say. Matthew Kennedy was huge in round one against the Tigers. He was good again, but it was really the Patrick Cripps and Harry Mackay show, at least early on. And they just overwhelmed the Bulldogs, generally speaking. I thought they did a nice job cleaning things up on the defensive end much more than the prior week. I liked what I saw from Lockie Fogarty. I liked what I saw from Oscar McDonald. They looked so far like a really complete team. Now, obviously, things are early. But these guys already, after two games with a new coach, seem to have a sense of identity. And that's that they're going to play fast and they're going to run you off the field. They're going to get going right from the center bounce. And it seems to be effective so far. And if they can sustain that week in and week out, they're going to be a really tough out and a real contender to make finals. Notably, this is the first time Carlton has hit the triple digits in consecutive rounds since round 10 and 11, 2016. So they didn't do that at all in the David Teague era. Was Teague holding them back? This is a very legitimate question. It might be that. It might have been just his system didn't match with the guys. But so far, they seem to be in a much better place now with Voss than they were with Teague. Of course, the Bulldogs were far from perfect themselves. After Hayden Crozier came off injured, Bailey Williams struggled, and Aaron Naughton also copped a bit of an injury as well. And considering how important he was round one and really will continue to be with the absence of Josh Bruce until likely late season. Any time that he's limited does not bode well for the dogs at all. I also thought Ed Richards just had a miserable game. The most notable thing he did was when he got tackled by Lockie O'Brien. Other than that, I mean, he was basically invisible. And as the Blues continued to have their way with the Bulldogs in their forward 50, there was no resistance from Richards or any of the other defenders. 
I did think on a more positive note for the dogs, I thought Mitch Hannon had a quietly excellent game. And I think he's just a super underrated player altogether. I really like what he offers. And when they're really all clicking, that's how they can compensate for Josh Bruce's absence with more strong play from a guy like Mitch Hannon. And then also you highlighted Jamar Hagen, who got time in the 22, didn't have to wait to be the sub. Definitely growing and has been finishing well, but what kind of room is there for him in a side like the Bulldogs? Honestly, being on a team like the Bulldogs really hinders his development because if he was with, say, Hawthorne, North, Adelaide, they'd be able to let him ride through the bumps with a grin if he's on Hawthorne. He'd be able to grow and handle the ups and downs of being a young player. But when you're on a team that's in cutthroat win-now mode, you can't do that as much. There's a lot less margin for error, and there's much less room for a young guy like him to grow. So it puts him in a really difficult spot, and that's no fault of his own. But it's one of those things where you look at him and you think, man, if he had been on a lesser team, he would have had a few more games of experience under his belt, and that really would have come in handy on Thursday night. Or even if he'd been on a younger team overall, not necessarily a lesser team. I mean, look at how quickly the Sydney Swans have risen with their young crop. We'll get to them when we go to the next game. Circling back to Carlton, obviously the focus is on the midfield going forward, producing offensively. But Sam Walsh had a really nice defensive play on Adam Trelore. And then looking further back, Jacob Wiedering wasn't perfect, but was overall quite strong. And he really helped drive that Carlton attack and team overall from the back. It's so interesting to me. This is a team where we thought their defense was a major vulnerability. They hadn't defended well under David Teague. Now under Voss, they're playing a faster system, and yet their defense still played quite well. Adam Saad might have been a little bit less visible than usual, but it was less visible in a positive way. If you're a defender and you're less visible because you're just doing the things you're supposed to, not getting anything wrong, then that's good. Whereas if you're invisible because you're just letting guys run past you, that's the wrong type of invisible defenseman. And he was definitely the better type of invisible defenseman for this game. And he did still make a few plays kind of roaming the back 50, starting up those counterattacks and getting the blues going. Other just kind of interesting general observations, I thought. Mitch Hannon had a Mark of the Week candidate, and despite it being a Bulldogs home game, it looked like a 60-40 Carlton crowd, which is interesting because with how successful the Bulldogs have been, and this is technically their home game, it seemed like they've got really strong support. But the Carlton fans, I don't know how many of them bought tickets just inspired by the win over Richmond, how many of them were planning on coming out to begin with, but they put on a show. They really took over Marvel Stadium. It was loud in there, even though there were only not even 35,000. Maybe that's just the effect of the roof being closed. But it was a great atmosphere throughout the night. And I feel like the crowd really did help boost Carlton a little bit, despite it being an away game for them, technically. With that, I think it's time to break out our two measurements. So the way these are going to work, they're both going to be the same, the RU screwdometer and the legitometer. They're both just going to go a simple 1 to 10, 1 being least screwed, least legit, 10 being most screwed and most legit. So let's start off with the Bulldogs. Benjamin, where do you put the Bulldogs on the RU screwdometer? I'm a little hesitant to put them that high on it. Just because I'm thinking back to not only their success last year, but what they're also missing up front in Josh Bruce. Also, Bontempelli did have an injury concern earlier in the week, so it makes sense that he may not have played up to his ability. 
it is most certainly a concern that they started the way they did, but I'm not going to say it is all that alarming. We kind of anticipated that the dogs would start slowly, I believe, in our previews, especially after the way Carlton opened the season. So I'm going to say a light three. I'm going to give them a two. And that's just because of the quality of competition they've faced so far. They faced a Melbourne team raising the flag, kicking off the season in a grand final rematch. That's just a tough spot to be in. And then Carlton, I think, you know, Carlton's the hot young thing right now. Hard to think of Carlton as young. You think of them as being, you know, such an old club with so much tradition. But the way they've started this season, there hasn't been enough time to really adjust. And I think as the season goes on and teams adapt to how Carlton plays... I think it'll probably be a more favorable matchup. If the dogs had the fortune of catching them later, maybe it would be a different story. It's a shame this is the only time they meet because I would have loved to see how Luke Beveridge and his staff try to kind of counter what was thrown at them the other night. You know, the Bulldogs have Sydney next week. And if they fall to 0-3, I think you could definitely bump it up a couple more spots. That's going to be a great way to start the round on Thursday night. And then they got Richmond round four. And considering the way Richmond responded to their own defeat at the hands of Carlton, there is potential for it to get a good deal uglier. We'll see what the injury prognoses are in terms of Naughton and others, because those will definitely play a significant factor. I will say... I think their top four chances have already taken a bit of a hit, but I don't think they're dead or anything close to it. Switching over toward the legitometer, you said that Carlton has been difficult to read with how different their style is under Michael Voss and the speed at which they've been playing. Where do you put them in terms of how legit they are two rounds through? I'm going to give them a seven. I'm really impressed. It seems to be a pretty sustainable style. I think it's the sort of thing that they don't have to worry about running out of gas in the later part of the season with the players that they have kind of fitting these roles so well. I think they've got the right age bracket and age range. You know, not a ton of inexperience, but not ridiculously experienced. So no style super ingrained. And I think seven is about right. I'm kind of shocked that I'm saying that that's about right, but I'm just thinking about what they were missing in each of these first two rounds with Sam Walsh out round one and Adam Chera out round two, and the havoc they were still able to wreak, also just a product of Patrick Cripps playing at his best. And I look forward to seeing if, and if so, how he can keep up that form because he's definitely a Brownlow shot at this point. What's so interesting is they were really efficient kicking on goal. You know, they kicked 16-6, but also they weren't that great at making chances out of their inside 50s. They only got 22 shots out of their 49 inside 50s. So they could regress positively in that respect, and it could compensate for some negative regression with their kicking. But I think they can be a pretty accurate kicking team. I mean, Kerno, Cripps, and Mackay, those are guys you generally trust. The next two weeks, they have Hawthorne and Gold Coast. So I think a 4-0 start is very possible for them. Possible, but not by any means easy. Moving on to what kind of ended up being the main feature of the weekend. Sydney over Geelong by 30, 17-5-107 to 10-17-77. There's one goal that everyone's going to be talking about. It's Jake Kolejashny's second of his career. The Cats are now 0-2 when he scores. Now maybe... It's just he shouldn't score against teams from New South Wales because the other was against GWS. Maybe he just shouldn't score altogether. But it's funny, outside of that goal, he had a shit game. And he's someone I really like, but he was awful. Really, most of the team was bad 
when Tom Hawkins and Jeremy Cameron combined to kick 05, you're in deep shit. I imagine that you could tell things were going to go awry pretty much as soon as Hawkins hooked that first one. Actually, I thought his first one wasn't such a bad miss, but once the second, then you realized, oh boy, here we go. I will say Brad Close was excellent. And the departure of Jordan Clark, who we'll get to later, I thought he had a terrible game this week, seems to have allowed Brad Close to do more, and he looked terrific. That said, this night was about the Swans even before the last quarter and change turned into the Buddy Franklin show. The Swans had a couple of really bad early disposals to put them in a quick 13-0 hole. You wonder if Duncan could have converted that third one into a goal and made it an 18-point game. Would the whole rest of the game been different? But after that, the Swans built up patiently. They had sustained possessions. And not only were they able to sustain possessions, they were able to take away some possessions early because where there's a chance for an intercept thus far this season, there is Patty McCartan. What a story he is continuing to be. He had five intercept marks before 13 minutes of clock time had elapsed, and he had seven overall. He kind of did exactly what the Cats like to do with Tom Stewart. The Cats also just looked structureless offensively a week after having a really good plan of attack against Essendon, where it was just kind of bomb it into the forward 50 and hope someone pulls down the mark, which isn't going to work against McCartan and isn't going to work against Sydney's defense at all. The Cats had cut it to 27-23. And then the Swans kicked four straight. Really, the Cats weren't that far off. Largely an even game other than the final couple minutes of the second and third quarters. That's where things really shifted in Sydney's favor. Tyson Stengel was quiet aside from getting called for a bad 50 that led to a goal. He had a bad 50 and a bad deliberate call out of bounds. I did not think the officiating was good at all. That said, it had nothing to do with why the Cats lost this game. It didn't help, but it wouldn't have changed the outcome. Then you had... Kola Jashney making a really poor decision in the final minute of the second quarter, going up to punch a ball when he could have taken an easy open mark and maybe set up a chance at the other end. At that point, the Cats were down 57-43. It leads to a goal that makes it 63-43, and the Swans ended up going into the half up 26. So that was a huge play. Stengel was largely invisible. Patrick Dangerfield was quiet. Brandon Parfit was quiet. Honestly, outside of close, the only guy who I thought had a half-decent game was Tom Atkins, who I thought was one of the weaker guys a week before. I also thought Zach Guthrie wasn't terrible. I thought he showed that he belonged out there, which is definitely an upgrade. Then Franklin's 999th and a late Heaney goal in the third stretched the lead to 94-60, and that just about put it away. If the Cats had gotten the next one, all of a sudden you're back to 16, and I thought if they could have just hung around, you know, within 15 or so... They would have had a shot at this thing. But that didn't happen. They went to the fourth down 33. And then Jezza had a close-range chance that potentially could have gotten a little spark to catch for the Cats, but he couldn't finish. As we said earlier, he and Hawkins combined to go 0-5. Not pretty at all. And really, it seems like the two of them have kind of been riding the same wave of momentum, either up or down thus far during their time together. Of course... Whereas Jezza couldn't finish, some guy named Lance could. Buddy Franklin scoring his thousandth goal was obviously the scene that'll be remembered. I'm surprised that ESPN didn't pick up more on this in the U.S. because just the scene of that many people on the field is something that you could show to an audience that knows nothing about the sport and people would think, holy shit, that's amazing. The security detail was severely understaffed, clearly, considering that Zach Tui got run into 
Tui did a great job, A, getting out of there, and B, returning the fan's wallet. And unlike Patrick Starr, the fan knew it was his wallet. It's not my wallet! No tickle belt required. During Sunday's games, there was some talk that apparently some fans were deliberately running into Jeremy Cameron and a couple others. And if that's true, that's just going to really make me hate the Swans. I don't know how much of that is true, but it sounds like at least catastrophe was avoided. There were some funny moments through all of it, though. Not just with the massive players on the field, but the players ending up off the field. John Longmire talked about realizing after a head count that they were a few guys short. And a couple of them, Ollie Florent and Chad Warner, ended up out on the street in the mess of trying to get back together with the team. They ended up on Driver Ave. You know, considering how few games they've actually gotten to play at the SCG the last couple years, I understand how it happened. It's still something that they probably should have been able to avoid, but mix of adrenaline and, again, you've only played a few actual home games. I can see how it happened. You know, at first, my whole thought going into the fourth quarter was, I just hope the Cats can prevent Buddy from getting his moment, mostly to prevent the fans from having that moment. I would love for them to play spoiler there, but it was a pretty cool scene. And honestly, a lot of the Cats players will probably be able to look back on it one day and say, I was there for Buddy Franklin's thousandth goal. And as you hinted at, this might not be something that we get to see ever again. The way that the pace of the game has changed just within a little over a decade. I mean, you look back to 2008, Buddy was kicking 100 goals and Brennan Favola kicked 99 that same home and away. And I mean, what's the likelihood not only of anyone getting 100 or anyone even getting 1,000 in their career again. Really, I don't see any fan invasions happening for a long time unless some St. Kilda fans go crazy when they finally win their flag 20 years from now. I think as the game currently sits, it's not happening anytime soon. But at some point, you know, the pendulum could shift, the way the game is played could change, and we could start to see individual totals like that again. Plus, maybe we'll just see, you know, as conditioning continues to improve and athletes get in better and better shape, maybe we'll see someone who just cracks the code, you know, some superhuman athlete who just kind of breaks the game. I think that's a possibility, but I don't think we're going to see something like that for quite a while again. Also not lost in all the commotion on the field is that someone did end up marking that Sharon and kept it for themselves for a couple of days, but apparently his intent was to always return it to Buddy, and Alex Wheeler did just that and got some nice rewards for it. Yeah, looks like the Swans hooked him up with not just a signed jumper and ball, it looked like there were some shoes and other merchandise in there as well, and they also gave him five-year memberships both to the club and to the SCG, so... Seems like a pretty worthwhile endeavor. Sometimes teams try to shortchange people when they're giving back commemorative balls and stuff. This, I think, he got his money's worth. Some are saying it warranted a life membership. Shrug. Five years is damn good on its own. And at that point, considering his super fandom already, I think he'd be glad to give them the money for the other years. Circling back to some last thoughts about this game itself. Geelong won the inside 50s by 18. So there was definitely the opportunity there. If you look at their goal kicking, it all kind of starts to make sense. They had more opportunities, especially some of them coming from, you know, their big goal kickers, but they couldn't get it together soon enough, let alone at all. They also did pad the stats a bit late, where some of those came with the game out of hand. So those numbers are a bit misleading. I did also think Isaac Smith had a decent game for what it's worth. It's interesting. The guys that I thought were kind of question marks from the Cats, 
were the ones who really played well. And the guys that I thought they'd be able to count on pretty much all collectively played poorly, with the exception of Brad Close, who went from being a quality player to an excellent one. And unfortunately, the rest of the team kind of got left behind. But I think that there's a lot to build off from this. There are a lot of easily correctable mistakes. And I think they'll come back ready to go for what should be a great match with Collingwood in round three. As for the Swans, they're legit. They're such a deep team. They're so well-structured and young in a lot of places, especially with their new midfield and forward crop that's starting to develop that even with some of the older pieces like Josh P. Kennedy, Buddy Franklin, Luke Parker isn't particularly young anymore. He's kind of middle-aged for the career. But it's scary to think that they're this capable and they're very far from their win-now era. They did this with Ollie Florent recording just 13 disposals, Tom Hickey, 16 disposals, 19 hitouts, and Pete Laddams hasn't even played yet, I believe. I really like how Hickey plays, though. It always seems like Dane Rampey plays better as the game goes on. Once again, you know, towards the fourth quarter, really start to shine. The two who really stood out to me, though, were Nick Blakey, who just, it seems like every time he touches the ball, it results in a positive possession for the Swans one way or another. There's a strong correlation between him being involved and things going well for Sydney. And then James Rowbottom is just the king of one percenters. For any American listener who doesn't quite understand the terminology, a one percenter is like, you know, those little extra plays that he always seems to get. He's just a super pesky player where he plays far above his talent level and he's got a lot of talent. So for him to play above that, I think he's just an awesome glue guy and is really the piece that puts the Swans over the edge. And while they're a team that I haven't been especially fond of from a rooting perspective, they're not a team that I've pulled for the last couple of years so far, but I like how they play. They're fun to watch, even if I'm not supporting. As an Eagles fan, I feel the same way with the history of that rivalry, even though that history has definitely led to that rivalry being less intense as of late. Hopefully that'll be revived soon, but a long way to go for the Eagles in that regard. We mentioned that DeLong has Collingwood next. That will be a hell of an affair next Saturday. Collingwood is another one of those 2-0 teams with a new coach. In fact, all three new coaches are 2-0, so we'll break out the legitometer for Collingwood after we discuss a bit about their 42-point win over Adelaide. Collingwood 15-10-100, defeating Adelaide 8-10-58. And uh, yeah, this was not a great tip, as you said. Yeah, I'm never taking Adelaide on the road in an interstate game again. Interstate games at home, they're dangerous no matter who they're playing. You know, they had the home wins over both Geelong and Melbourne last year, but they did not look the part. They looked really poor. From Elliot Himmelberg just looking lost with a couple of really poor kicking decisions. Though he did play a little better as the game went on, though not enough to keep him in the side. The inexplicable exclusion of Riley Philthorpe, which I think might have contributed to Josh Rochelle having a bit of a quieter game. He was still good, but nowhere near as prominent. This was just, they looked like a wooden spoon team in this game instead of a sneaky, could-steal-a-couple-games-from-good-teams type of unit. Collingwood was firing on all cylinders, and a lot of the reason why was from some players that didn't feature much or at all in the Black and White Stripes last season. Jeremy Howe was a very welcome presence after injuries reduced into eight games in 2021, and also the Pies seemed to have a new cult hero in Nathan Kruger. You know, he never really had a spot with the cast, so this was... 
a good move for him, and seems like the fans have really caught on to him already. He's got good goal-scoring ability. There just wasn't room for him with Geelong, and he ended up scoring a couple of different goals, one off a center-bound sequence and then one off kind of a tough-angled drop punt. That center-bound sequence was one of a few led by Jack Crisp, who had a monstrous first half and an excellent game overall. The stat that jumps out to me, nine tackles in the first half alone. He was everywhere. And speaking of Jacks, Jack Ginnivan also had an excellent first half. He's only 19. And he's clearly backing up his exuberance last week, which really wasn't a big deal in the first place. But 13 disposals, four inside 50s, three score involvements in the first half alone. And off the back of those two Jacks, Collingwood really didn't look back. And they kept the pressure on the whole way on both sides. They kicked seven goals in the first half, eight in the second. And it was just a comprehensive win for them. And they allowed just 58 points without Braden Maynard. So you get him back and the defense probably gets even better. I don't think this could even possibly be an addition by subtraction type thing because he makes them better. I don't think two wins without him could even possibly lead to anyone thinking this team benefits from his absence. The Fire Alarm was an interesting little note there. You know, I was actually out at dinner at the time watching the game on my phone on mute. And then I just kind of saw everyone standing there in the middle of the field and fans filing out. So that was interesting. But at least they got things patched up quickly there and got the game resumed and got fans back to their seats. It was a false, false alarm, which is definitely a new one, as well as just this whole fire during the game is do for me and probably for anyone watching. It was actually a small fire in a concession at the Ponsford stand. There was a video that we shared on our Twitter and I noted that there was a lot of water that was coming from the ceiling and I assumed that was from a fire sprinkler that had been activated. They said it posed no immediate threat to the spectators and by the looks of it, it was contained pretty quickly. I will note, this was not the only major sporting venue evacuation this weekend. There was also one at Scotiabank Arena during the Toronto Raptors basketball game when a speaker caught fire. So I don't know what is in the water or I guess the air at major stadiums lately, but yes, it might be time to get those maintenance checks again. Ben Keyes with a game-high 37 disposals for Adelaide. Brody Smith had 30, but Seemed like some of those were kind of empty possessions, you know, quick little disposals in there, back 50 stuff that makes the fantasy numbers look good. But ultimately, while I don't think he actively hurt them with most of those possessions, they weren't exactly doing anything to really affect the outcome. There were a couple bright spots for Adelaide, despite not doing the little or simple things well. There were a couple first AFL goals. Mitch Hinge got his in the middle of the second quarter, just his fifth game in four years of AFL, and then Luke Pedler got his early third quarter. They did steady themselves a bit mid-second quarter. Jordan Dawson got a goal as a result, but really, that was it. This was Collingwood through and through. Just want to highlight Darcy Moore's anchoring role on the defense. Consistently good, pretty much in all facets. His dominance against Lachlan Gallant, even with Gallant's goal, makes me wonder even more why Riley Philthorpe was left out. And then Steel Sidebottom, still a very important piece. He finally got Collingwood's first goal of the second quarter late, and he continued to have a good role on wings and inside 50 throughout. And Pat Lipinski is really starting to look like someone the dogs may regret getting away. 
All right, I think it's time to break out the legitometer once again for Craig McRae's Magpies. I was kind of struggling with this one, and I'm going to give a six, although I think what they're doing might be a little bit more sustainable than Carlton. I think their ceiling is a little bit lower. That said, if they play like they did and the Cats play like they did, they can not just beat you long, but beat them comfortably. So let me put that disclaimer out there so I'm not jinxing anything. I think you could give them a six or a seven. I'm going to go six. But the difference between them and Carlton is I think Carlton's ceiling is higher, but I think Collingwood has some proven assets there. I just think Collingwood's ceiling is more of, you know, uh, somewhere between eighth and sixth place, whereas Carlton, I think, could fly a little bit higher. Before the last game of the round, where Collingwood's first opponent, St. Kilda, showed their capabilities, I was thinking Collingwood would be more toward a five for me. But it's definitely a six now and a mid to strong six at that. They've definitely got a younger crop that started to come through. We didn't even mention the Daycost brothers at all, but they were solid once again. And they've clearly got some depth because even when Nathan Kruger went down, Darcy Cameron filled the role quite well. Strange to have a ruck as a sub, but it completely worked. And it's clear that McRae knows how to use those assets. And there are just a few players on Collingwood that can make an impact all over the field that raise their floor above Carlton's, perhaps. The other thing is they have guys that are such proven commodities, even if they're a bit older. Guys like Pendlebury, guys like Sidebottom, Brody Majacek, who we barely mentioned, but I thought played quite well. I thought it was another strong game from Jordan Degoe. I think the recipe for them is a little bit more straightforward. Again, I just think when everything's clicking for Carlton, they can fly a little bit higher, which is why I give Carlton the seven and Collingwood a six, but context matters there. I really like what McRae is doing so far, and frankly, it's better for the sport when Collingwood's competitive, and they've definitely shown so far that they're competitive. Every sport needs protagonists and antagonists, and whether or not you like Collingwood, they are kind of perennial antagonists, and Carlton, as their rival, will definitely fill the other side of that. We're not breaking out the Are You Screwdometer for this game or the next one, despite a finals team starting 0-2, but don't worry, it'll be back. Shifting toward that fourth game of the round, Essendon 10-15-75, defeated by Brisbane 15-7-97. Boy, this was encouraging in parts for Essendon, despite the end result. They actually showed that, yes, they have some depth in their lineup, and yes, they can run with good teams, even though the Brisbane Lions have started both their games this season quite poorly, only to be able to pour it on late. I'm not sure if, at this point, that says more about the Lions themselves or their opponent's energy at the start of things. And welcome back, Jake Stringer, because he had an immediate impact, and Peter Wright also looked sharp early. A couple of things that stood out to me for the Lions, not so much performance related, but Harris Andrews looks a lot younger than he is, and Daniel Rich is listed at 183 centimeters, or just a hair over six feet, and he looks a lot shorter than that, so I'm calling bullshit on that one. I thought the start for Brisbane, despite them getting their shit together to the point where they led by halftime, went up by 22 at the end of the third and led by more than that down the stretch before a couple of late Essendon goals. I thought those slow starts are a concern, even though it's just two games in. 
Geelong had similar troubles last year, and there were some games where you spot a team 20 points early. No matter how good you are, it's hard to make that up. So that's something that they're going to have to get on very quickly in order to ensure that it doesn't become a recurring problem. On the surface, I wouldn't be as concerned just looking at the scoreline, the fact that they ended up beating two other 2021 finals teams, but actually watching the games themselves, there are definitely some pieces and holes in their game plan that were exposed early both times. And it's great that a team can adjust, but it's more ideal for a team to not have to adjust that early, let alone at all. Chris Fagan is definitely a good coach in being able to get things together, but getting things together shouldn't be the MO. One major positive for the Lions was that Lockie Neal looked like his 2020 form, maybe even better than that. 41 disposals, kick 2-2 as well. He was the best player on the field by far. Let's also note that those 41 disposals came at more than three-quarter efficiency, which, considering how busy he was, is quite good, and that 22 of those possessions were contested. So he was in the thick of things all night, and he was doing the right thing a lot of those times. And his two goals were excellent plays, too. That second one had the potential to be a dagger, if not for a late couple runs by Essendon that ultimately fell flat. I thought it was the dagger. I thought any Essendon goals down the stretch were too late anyway. Even if Parrish had scored to get them within 10, it would have been too late. I also thought very underrated moment was Cam Rayner getting a goal. I'm surprised that didn't get a bit more attention. You know, he's a young, fun, energetic player, and it's nice to see him back and close to full strength. Dane Zorko was clearly less than full strength, clearly slowed by the injuries that he suffered against Port Adelaide, but still managed to rack up 33 disposals and 16 marks. So he still had a pretty solid game. Additionally, Hugh McCluggish bagged three goals. He played quite forward compared to round one, and I'm wondering if that was something possible because of Lockie Neal's dominance. Really, everyone seemed to play a bit more forward other than Neal. You had Zach Bailey also going a bit more forward. He got a goal early in the second quarter, as did Lincoln McCarthy that brought the Lions to life, and they didn't look back from there. Joe Danaher also playing his first time in Melbourne against his family's Essendon side, had another good showing. The booze didn't phase him at all. He honestly just seems like a fun player to be around. He can clearly laugh at himself, considering what we saw last round. And when he is on, he is on. The big blow for Essendon didn't so much come in falling to 0-2. If you had said at the start of the year, regardless of how the games actually looked, that they were going to be 0-2 after facing Geelong and Brisbane... I think most people would have said, yeah, that sounds about right. And that's why we're not breaking out the RU screwdometer. But Zach Merritt suffering ankle syndesmosis and likely missing six to eight weeks is a big fucking deal. And that really puts them in a tough spot where injuries had already hurt them a bit. This just adds to it. Another big fucking deal in the words of our current president, Dyson Heppel was pretty much invisible. And there was some talk on social media about Ben Rutten potentially needing to make a statement by dropping him, and I'm not opposed to that at all. Yes, he's the captain, but a captain should neither be invisible nor impervious to deselection. On that optimistic note, we are moving on to a game where we will get to break out both the RU Screwdometer and the Legitometer. I think one of the most shocking results of the weekend, probably the most, although the finale to round two definitely threw me off as well. But this one 
It was our first run of simultaneous games so far this year, so we kind of divided and conquered. I focused more on Port Adelaide Hawthorne. You focused more on Gold Coast Melbourne. Because it started 20 minutes earlier, let's go ahead and start with Port Adelaide Hawthorne, where I don't think anyone saw this coming. Port Adelaide losing at home by 64. Hawthorne, 19-6-120 to Port Adelaide, 7-14-56. I'm... I'm floored. I'm not at a loss for words because there were a lot of observations. Yes, they were playing without O'Leary O'Leary and Charlie Dixon, but that's still a game that you would have expected Port Adelaide to win, especially facing a lower-tier side like Hawthorne. I mean, home opener, they come out. It's a tribute to Russell Ebert. It's a roaring home crowd. They're singing Never Tear Us Apart. You think, all right, here comes Port Adelaide. They get off to a slow start, and you still think, all right, they're just getting settled in. Good teams have bad first quarters. We just saw that with Brisbane earlier tonight. And instead, they trailed 20-3 to after a quarter. They trailed by 28 at the half. They trailed by 36 after three and never recovered. I was, I was shocked. The absences of Alira Dixon are clearly felt. They were felt last week, but it was highlighted with Alir being out for the full contest. I mean, you mentioned before we started recording that tonight made the case for both of them to be all Australians because of just how much Port Adelaide faltered in their absence. However, this game was not lacking in a great defensive and overall performance from a South Sudanese player. Chakwath Jath was excellent again. The numbers don't do it justice. He had 11 disposals and two tackles, but the space he covered, the ability to interfere with Port Adelaide's attack, and his ability to just move so quickly up and down the ground and appear in so many different roles makes him a super valuable player. And he's one of the more fun players to watch in the sport, I think. I was glad that he was given the green light to run again as much as he did. I was wondering after round one, if the bigger names in the midfield and forward lines would prevent that from happening, but it's clear that Sam Mitchell is embracing Joff's role on his side. Now, Hawthorne's developed a clear identity under Mitchell in these first couple games. I think they're aware that they're not a team that's going to be able right now with the talent they have to dominate possession, but they are an excellent counterattacking team thus far. They showed some of that against North. They showed a ton of it at Port Adelaide, and it was really where they had almost all their success. I think it's a great method to follow when you have a less talented team where you're not going to be able to control possession. My question is, with a better roster, would Sam Mitchell still do this, or would he kind of put it on the back burner? And that's something that obviously right now we don't have the answer to, and we may not have the answer to for a while. But that said, this was a pretty terrific performance from Hawthorne. Unlike last week, Jack Gunston was kicking accurately from the beginning. Chad Wingard, before going off injured, looked pretty sharp. He kicked two quick goals. Dylan Moore had another really solid performance. Jack Scrimshaw was everywhere defensively. Jagger O'Meara racked up 22 disposals. They certainly welcomed Luke Bruce and Ben McAvoy back. Bruce kicking three goals. McAvoy handling some of the ruck duties along with Ned Reeves, who racked up 34 hitouts. What's interesting is from a statistical standpoint, aside from hitouts, almost everything actually went in Port Adelaide's favor. But Port Adelaide got killed in the ruck, 53 to 29. 
And if you watch the actual game, this was clearly a game where the stats didn't do it justice. It took until the third minute of the second quarter for Port Adelaide to actually get a goal, which was a very nice goal by Scott Lysett. He kind of slid through and soccered it in. That was an entertaining play. Especially coming from a ruck. But they just looked half a beat off on every inside 50, and some of that can obviously be credited to Charlie Dixon's absence. But you wonder just how reliant they are on him. You know, Mitch Georgiatis, a second straight week, very quiet. Jeremy Finlayson kicked 0-2. He was just super inaccurate. Finlayson and Georgiatis combined to kick 0-5, and that can't happen. But that isn't so much something that you can credit to Dixon's absence, because most of those were off free kicks that just weren't on target. It was more that they weren't able to get more chances. They weren't able to get a clean handle on the ball. They weren't able to move with the swiftness and crisp attacking nature that they usually do and that we've come to expect over the last two years from Port Adelaide. Looking at the statistics that are in Hawthorne's favor, a big one is the efficiency inside 50. And I think this stat might really sum up the game other than the scoreline. Port Adelaide efficiency inside 50 on their disposals, 44.8. Hawthorne, 54.3. And again, they did excel in the hitouts. We gave you those numbers. Also, marks inside 50 and contested marks, both clearly in Hawthorne's favor. So they were making the most out of fewer opportunities. And some of those were high percentage opportunities because they had numbers and because they were coming through that counterattacking system. There were a couple of little positives for Port Adelaide. Dan Houston, while he didn't have numbers that jumped off the page like he did in the loss to Brisbane... He still looked quite solid. And Sam Powell Pepper, despite always having this facial expression like he's hunting for ghosts, played quite well. He ended up with three goals. He was one of the few bright spots. Connor Rosie wasn't invisible. He wasn't great, but he wasn't invisible. Xavier Dersma, however, was beyond bad. He wore number 50 instead of number seven as part of the Russell Ebert tribute. Everyone had a seven patch on the front of their uniform and... Regardless of what number Dersma wore, you hardly would have noticed him because he had a really, really poor game. He had a bad turnover right after Sam Powell Pepper had a tackle that could have generated momentum, and that just kind of summed up the night. The biggest thing were the results on set shots. Hawthorne kicked 14 set shots and scored 13 goals out of them. Port Adelaide kicked 10, one goal, six behinds. With that, I think it's time to break out the measurements again. First off, let's do the Are You Screwedometer for Port Adelaide. You want to start this one? It's tough to read it a little bit because of the absences that are basically driving our entire conversation around them with Alir and Dixon both being out. But the fact that the side is so reliant on the both of them, as well as Ollie Wines, And the regression of Connor Rosie, despite being on contract, makes me much more worried about Port Adelaide than the Bulldogs. I'm going to ramp it up to a mid-five. I do think Aaliyah's absence was especially notable because if he's out there, he probably is able to stop some of those counterattacks. I don't think it would have been the be-all and end-all, but it certainly wouldn't have hurt to have him. Considering the absences and considering that that first game was a tough one to win. It's hard to win with the Gabba. I'm going to put this one at a four, but if they lose Adelaide Showdown, it's going up to an eight. You can imagine it being like, you know, a little sliding dial or something. 
I've got it at four, but I am right there waiting, ready to ramp it up to an eight at a moment's notice. I mentioned this in the Team by Team previews, episode three, and I think people are starting to see where it's coming from now. I was saying, another poor season where Port Adelaide don't realize their potential, and even with Ken Hinckley under contract for another year, are we on Clarko watch in Port Adelaide? The legitometer for Hawthorne. Benjamin, where do you put the Hawks? The fact that they did what they did round one against North Melbourne wouldn't have really raised eyebrows for me, except that they did it without Bruce and McAvoy, and those two key veteran pieces definitely showed their impact in this one. The fact that they also got this done despite the injuries in a really tough interstate environment impresses me a lot. I'm just wondering how much other teams will be able to adjust and how quickly that's going to happen. This is a far different look from the Alistair Clarkson era, and it requires teams to really rethink their strategies against Hawthorne for the first time in probably the good part of a decade and a half. I'm going to go for a strong four because I like what they have, but I'm just not sure how sustainable it's going to be. I will also add that Tom Mitchell has been getting back to the type of performances that you'd expect out of a Brownlow medalist. Mitchell was the highest ranking Hawthorne player with ease among a large swath of Port Adelaide guns that seem to be firing, but firing in the wrong directions. How about you, Ethan? Seven of the eight top players by ranking points were from Port Adelaide, including the top four by a wide margin going Travis Boat, Carl Amon, Zach Butters, and Ollie Wines. I am also giving the Hawks a four. I'm surprised. I thought they were a team that would take a while to find their identity and then be a tough out as the season went on. Instead, it seems like they're a team that you'd probably rather face later rather than earlier so that you have more time to adjust and anticipate what they're doing now. But I like how they've played so far. And I think for a team that's kind of lean on talent. I think they're making the most out of what they have, and I'm really impressed with that. I'm just looking forward now to seeing what Sam Mitchell will do going forward once Hawthorne is able to build themselves up. I mean, Mitchell Lewis has heard himself quite well these first couple games, and he can really spearhead a new young forward group. And once they have that, will there be this much counterattacking, or will he shift his strategy to have kind of a free or flowing game overall. The next few weeks are going to be really revealing for them. They have a bunch of games at the G. They're facing Carlton, technically as the away team this week. Then they're at home against St. Kilda in round four. Round five, they're the home team for Easter Monday against Geelong. Round six, they go to Tasmania, serve as the home team against Sydney. Round seven, they're back at the G once again as the visiting team, taking on Melbourne. So these next few weeks could prove if the Hawks are just going to be a pesky lower ladder team, or if they're going to be a surprise contender for the eight. I'm already circling that Anzac round match in Monzeston. Hawthorne tends to play their best there, and the way the Sydney Swans have been firing to start the campaign, I think we're in for another Anzac thriller out there at Utah's. Before we continue, you know, I was making pasta the other day, and I was testing the sauce, and there was something missing. I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I realized I had to add time. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady. 
a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So Ethan focused on Port Adelaide and Hawthorne. Meanwhile, I focused on Gold Coast and Melbourne, which started 20 minutes later at the top of that hour. And this one was a good deal closer than I expected, even though I thought it would end up being, you know, a competent showing from the Suns. It ended up being more than competent for a lot of it. It ended up being Gold Coast 10-9-69. Nice. Defeated by Melbourne 12-10-82. Gold Coast's game plan was visible from the beginning. They wanted to go up-tempo and swarm around the ball defensively. It was clear that Gold Coast understood that Melbourne was the deeper side and that their success would be predicated on D's making mistakes. And some of that did happen. Gold Coast came out of the gate scoring the first 15 points. Then Melbourne scored the next 25. And really, that was the end of the real runs there. But from there, they largely traded off, never getting super out of reach, always staying within four goals at the most, I believe. And it's all the more remarkable that Gold Coast stuck with Melbourne, considering that they were without Isaac Rangan, who was an extremely late out. They never specified what that injury was, but they still did hang with them. To nobody's surprise, the Suns were driven by their midfield tandem of Tuke Miller and Matt Rowell. It's also no shock that Melbourne struck while Miller was off the ball. Tuke Miller had 17 disposals in the first quarter and ended with 38. Uh I'm like, hey, what's up, hello? Matt Rouse started off quite productive, but cooled off later on. Overall, though, the pieces that had done well for the Suns in the first round showed up again. Mavior Chol had a couple bursts in the second half against West Coast. He was more consistent overall, including an excellent stretch of the ruck early on. Jared Witz ended up asserting himself there quite well, but Chol's leaving abilities made him a very good matchup in the ruck early on. Another interesting thing to note in terms of the ruck situation is that Max Gaughan really seeded maybe about half his ruck time, if not more, to Luke Jackson. So that's the signal of a big shift for Melbourne, and Jackson took advantage of it, while Gaughan didn't seem to be nearly as effective overall, even when he was playing more forward. And it's something that's a bit alarming and one of the few concerns for Melbourne coming off, winning a flag, and gone being their All-Australian captain and starting off with two wins this season. I'm just wondering, you know, is it a matchup situation or are there greater concerns for Max gone that are going to be prevalent beyond these first two rounds? I think it's not as much of an issue. I think it's fine for him to kind of ease into things, especially coming off of playing a full season last year plus finals. And you're going to have to kind of manage guys' loads over the course of the season. And if you're able to still start off 2-0 and without him being very prominent, that's a very encouraging sign. I don't think it's much of a negative at all. I think within the next couple weeks, he'll have a performance that reminds everyone why he's a premiership captain. And an Australian captain. Of course, they still are the two giant paint bubbles that we talked about, Gone and Jackson, and Luke Jackson being as good as he is at 20 is scary as hell. And Gone and Jackson are far from the only dynamite tandem that Melbourne has. 
Dan at Aussie Gecko TV and I got into a conversation about how Melbourne may actually have the two or three best tandems at their respective positions in all the AFL. You got Clayton Oliver and Christian Petraka in the midfield. Oliver played quite well. I think despite Petraka's activity, Oliver ended up being the player that I was impressed by more. And then in the back side of things, you got Stephen May and Jake Lever when he's healthy. Lever is out right now, but... Stephen May loomed large again, as always. It was his 50th game as a Demon, and it came against his old side, and I think he was definitely motivated in that sense. I'm just so impressed by how Melbourne is able to have two good players working so well together in really all three-thirds of the ground. Oh yeah, and they have an emerging 19-year-old defender in Jake Bowie who racked up 34 disposals at 79% efficiency, second most disposals on the team to only Petraka, who had 40. But Petraka was far less efficient. He was a little over half. Meanwhile, 18 of Bowie's possessions were contested, and he had 16 intercepts and gained 572 meters, despite just being on the ground for 72% of the contest. That's a vote-getting performance from a teenager that really I don't think anyone would have expected to take the strides that he's made in the past calendar year. Clayton Oliver actually had a very similar line. He also had 34 disposals and 18 contested possessions, but his efficiency was at a much more pedestrian 62%, whereas Bowie was at 79. He's been one of the rising stars so far this season, and maybe he could even win the rising star vote for round two. We're recording this before any of that comes in, before goal of the week, mark of the week, all of that. I think Even if it was more flashy numbers than anything and, you know, some empty disposals in there, I still think it was a really good game for Christian Petraka. The 14 inside 50s within the first three quarters is insane. Oh, yeah. And 780 meters gained. And credit to Brayden Fiorini for being able to reel Petraka in a bit during the fourth quarter. Didn't have any inside 50s then. There was talk about him potentially breaking the record, which was 16 set by a few players. Of course, there's also the question of, you know, how much Melbourne stayed on the gas the full way through the fourth quarter, but they were certainly on the gas for a portion of it because they couldn't close it out until late. Also, we never mentioned, holy cow, Kazi Pickett did it again. He crumbed weed between Lemons, Anderson, and Powell on a hell of a right snap in the late third quarter that I really thought was going to be the dagger before Melbourne had difficulty closing in the fourth. They were 0-5 on the scoreboard in the fourth. And yes, some of that was because they were deliberately going slower. But the fact that they couldn't close things out, even in the first 10-15 minutes, real time or clock time, take your pick, is something that I think Simon Goodwin is going to be thinking about going forward. I never felt like the outcome was in doubt, regardless of what the score said. Neither did I. That said, I'm pleasantly surprised by how the Suns played, considering that they were missing one of their top players in Isaac Rankin, and that they only allowed 82 to a Melbourne team that can go on runs, and they only allowed that one run when you consider how much of a question Gold Coast's defense is. You know, I was one of the few people who was really high on the Suns at the start of the year, and through two rounds, they at least looked like not a wooden spoon type team. They looked like a competent team, maybe not a finals team, but at least a team with positive momentum that's gaining some traction. And I'm excited to see what they do next. Round three, they travel to the Giants. Huge opportunity there, I think could be very telling for both teams. We'll get to the Giants in a bit. 
Of course, the Suns have been known to get out of the gate well and recede just as quickly. The question is, once again with them, is it sustainable? And I mentioned Jared Witts a bit at the start. Didn't really mention those stats because considering the abilities of Luke Jackson and Max Gone, Witts had a huge impact with 38 of Gold Coast's 49 hitouts. They won the hitout battle 49 to 35. And it's clear that Gold Coast was missing a lot in Jared Witts being absent for nearly all of last year. Despite losing the hitout battle, Jackson and Gone still had pretty solid games, especially Jackson. So it's another sort of misleading number at times where I don't think it's necessarily damning for Melbourne, but it is certainly something that Gold Coast can hang their hats on and something they can build off. Especially because that hitout success allowed plays to advantage through Tuke Miller and Matt Brown. Moving on from the Saturday games to the Sunday triple header, started off with North Melbourne taking on the West Coast Eagles in one of the most bizarre games maybe ever, considering you have a wooden spoon caliber team in North Melbourne against a team that, even though they're not expected to be a finals team this year, has been in the conversation more often than not in West Coast. North Melbourne won by 15, and yet everyone's singing the praises of the Eagles. The details there, North Melbourne, 10-14-74, the West Coast, 8-11-59. This was not a high-quality display of football. It wasn't quite a sickos game, but it was not high-quality. But Benjamin, you can elaborate on why that is and why people are actually pretty bullish on the Eagles after that one. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, what could you compare this to? And I was thinking maybe the game where the Denver Broncos had to put Kendall Hinton at quarterback. But unlike that game, the Eagles stuck with North Melbourne. Yes, it's North Melbourne, but the fact that they were able to stick with any side with a total of 14 changes from round one is impressive in ways that I would never have expected. Now, of course, a couple of those ins are valuable pieces that were out with injuries or health and safety protocols or just not being up to speed. Tim Kelly was in, Liam Ryan, Jack Darling, Luke Shuey. However, the top-up list was used multiple times, including one change that was so sudden that the player involved, Declan Mountford, was in a polo at the time of the opening bounce. Dermot Brereton was in the elevator with Mountford because Mountford was suddenly told, oh, hey, Jackson Nelson's injured. You got to go play. So that ended up being change number 14. And they showed you on the little inset camera that Fox Footy uses pretty frequently. They showed him, you know, in the changing rooms. They showed him warming up after the game had begun. It was, it was interesting. It was a one-of-a-kind experience I think for American audiences or Australian audiences, the fall of the NFL, you say that some of the 2020 and a little bit of the 2021 NFL season was kind of like that. I think actually the comparison that might be the most accurate is the Browns taking the Raiders down to the wire despite having, I think, a number three quarterback. I forget who it was, but... Yeah, I think that is more apt than Kendall Hinton. That was just the one that stuck out to me just in terms of how bizarre the change ended up being. However, it wasn't, you know a terrible third-string quarterback for Cleveland. It was Nick Mullins, who had done some nice things that we had seen in the Bay Area just because we are in 49ers country. 
but that's American football, and we're Americans talking about Australian rules football. If you're wanting to talk about what stood out offensively in this one, Willie Rioli kicked four goals, and there was some positives on that front. It's clear that he hasn't really lost his step despite missing two years of AFL action. His first kick for goal was absolutely awful. No elevation on it at all, but clearly that didn't phase him at all. And overall, he and the Eagles played as if they had nothing to lose, and really, they didn't. Another thing that I liked seeing was Adam Simpson was coaching on the sidelines at the start of the game. I forget how long he was there, but he was one of those coaches that pretty much is always in the box. But I guess maybe he wanted more direct communication with the new faces. And I think that was something that I really appreciated. And when I pointed it out on Twitter, it seemed like some other Eagles fans appreciated that as well. Luke Davies Uniac exited a minute in the second quarter. He got concussed on a hard Willie Rioli tackle that we both thought was clean. There are some people wondering if there could be disciplinary action. I really don't think there should be, and I'm unbiased here. I think it's just Fox footy headline mongering. And then the injury concerns did not stop there for North Melbourne, not in the second quarter, especially because right at the end of that, Taron Thomas, who had a long-range goal that made me think of Tom Boyd's goal from the center square, <laughs> even though Thomas's kick was nowhere near as pretty, but Thomas had been figuring large, and then he likely cracked a rib or two just before halftime. That put North two midfield rotations down and... With the ability that the Eagles had shown in the midfield and with the speed through there with someone like Tim Kelly back, I really thought, okay, they have a chance to stay close with this. And they more than stayed close. That said, Nick Larky did enough to keep North Melbourne in front. He ended up kicking 6-3 for the game. The six goals are the most for any player in a game so far this year. Obviously, we're just 18 games in at this point, but... It's worth noting. Also, in terms of the defense for the Eagles, largely depleted, and it kind of makes sense that North Melbourne were able to capitalize in some areas where they did just a lot of easy entries, but Jeremy McGovern's back work kept things far more respectable than they otherwise would have been. However, I cannot say the same about really that respectable or remarkable play in terms of Jack Darling. He does not look up to speed yet, and it's clear that he shouldn't have been in. COVID notwithstanding. It was also a pretty quiet game from Jack Petrocelli. Really would have thought his speed would have factored in more. He seemed to be a bit on the quieter side. And maybe if he has a better game, maybe we're talking about the Eagles pulling off one of the greatest upsets of all time. We still have plenty of positives for the Eagles. I mean, Aaron Black had a first goal on a debut that's been a long time coming, age 29. And the Eagles were even on clearances, plus two on inside 50s, and heck, they won the second half. I end up being a bit disappointed about this game for the best reason, and that's because they had a real chance to win this. And that's more than I ever would have expected. And so while North Melbourne Bay have won the game, I really think the Eagles won the day. And I really loved hearing Luke Shuey's interview afterwards talking about how their group was able to come together. And it's definitely something that should inspire them and other teams that may face the same issues going forward. In terms of the home side's victory, Jason Horn Francis didn't have as big an impact, I think, as round one, but he is damn hard to bring down. Shannon Hearn struggled with him multiple times. 
Figures that loomed large for North included Hugh Greenwood. No, not the cleanest game for him, but very busy. 29 disposals with 16 contested and 9 clearances. He is a sneakily good pickup that I don't think anyone expected to be a pickup because the Gold Coast Suns decided, hey, we'll bring you back. Yeah, North Melbourne had different ideas. And then Jack Zeeble, a very strong outing, 29 disposals at about an 83% clip. Other than his front on contact with Liam Ryan, he probably had the cleanest and maybe best aground game for North Melbourne. And so that's definitely something off which they can build if he stays in for this next little bit. Moving on to the eight of the nine games and the last time we get to use the RU screwdometer this week. And by the way, we're already done with the legitometer. Richmond over GWS by 36. Richmond 16-13-109. Giants 10-13-73. I left this one supremely disappointed with Greater Western Sydney. I thought this was a huge opportunity for them against a super banged up Richmond team. No Dylan Grimes, obviously no Dion Prestia, no Dustin Martin, and yet the Tigers were pretty dominant. They went into halftime with a 20-point lead, led by 24 after three, and won this game by 36. And also they lacked Jack Revolt, which makes their scoring all the more impressive. They got, I think, the best goal of the week when Toby Nankervis kicked the ball out of midair. That put him up 36-16. to 16. That early stretch of the second quarter is really where the Tigers started to get going, and it never really stopped. It's interesting. Last week, the Giants scored off a bunch of center bounces against Sydney. This time, the Giants couldn't stop the center bounce attack that Richmond was levying on them. There were a couple of things that definitely didn't go GWS's way. Losing Daniel Lloyd, his arm was in a sling, sounds like something might have been broken there. They did cut it to 37-29 when Stephen Canelio scored from a tough angle, but their midfield was getting outplayed. And then Noah Balta scored to make it a 20-point game going into the half. Ivan Soldo played really well across the middle two quarters. Jake Ricciardi had a big miss wide. It would have cut the lead down to 14. Instead, Richmond comes right back the other way and scores. It's an 11-point swing. At that point, the Tigers led 68-43. to And frankly, that was about it. I really thought that the Tigers may have already been home free once Phil Davis went down injured. That was right around the time that Volta got that free kick goal. That might have actually been on the tackle that led to that. It was. Thank you for the reminder. I don't get why they gave a free kick to Volta. But that was a massive blow to Greater Western Sydney that looks like it may keep Davis out for at least a few rounds. It does not look like, you know the easiest of hamstring pulls and considering his impact thus far in that game and also his containment of Buddy Franklin in the Sydney Derby in round one where you saw what he did in round two once Davis was off of him. This is a big concern for a Giants side that is already lacking as a whole as a defensive unit. They have a couple good pieces but Davis is one of just a couple. Bobby Hill had a couple of misses. He finished with just two behinds. Dang it, Bobby. Not the sort of game they needed out of him. Harry Himmelberg was okay, not great. Finished kicking 2-1. Overall, Richmond's tall forwards really dominated, whether that was Tom Lynch, whether that was Noah Balta. 
But overall, Richmond dominated this game. This was a vintage Tigers performance, even without a lot of the familiar faces. Of the lesser-known guys, I thought, first off, Joshua Gibkes looked pretty good. He had a couple of really nice marks. And Hugo Ralph Smith, not just a cool name and great hair, he's a legitimately skilled player who I think is going to be a factor for a long time, is going to become a fan favorite if he isn't one already. Finished with 19 disposals and really did a nice job in the defensive half. And then he broke out for a goal, even though he spent 85% of his time on the field in the defensive half. And that was a great, you know, streaming through goal and a pretty long kick. 19 disposals at 90% efficiency. He really made the most of his time out there. And that's the sort of thing that can translate into when the Tigers are closer to full strength, giving him a role as an effective interchange player where he can come in for brief spurts, be an effective player, and then go right back to the sidelines. I also thought down the stretch, the broadcasters were trying to say GWS had a shot after they started moving their midfielders up. And when Josh Kelly got a goal to cut it to 84-64, then Castagna got the goal to put it away. But I didn't think the game was in doubt at that point anyway. And then GWS, they just looked mentally broken during the late stretches. They looked really deflated, really flat, and... One thing that the broadcasters, as well as the in-studio team discussing between games, kept circling was Tom Green moving to the ruck and the negative repercussions that came out of that. It stopped him from kind of playing that more attack-heavy role that he had in the Sydney Derby. And you combine that with a team that's going to have to attack to be successful because their defense kind of sucks, it puts them in a really bad spot. And the broadcasters seem to really like Leon Cameron. But this was not his finest moment. It was a failed experiment. And I think Leon Cameron is wise enough to leave it as a one-time experiment. Jaden Short, Nathan Broad, and Daniel Rioli did a nice job defensively and kind of in that halfback role. Short with 33 disposals. That was a team high. He also ended up with 10 marks. 87.9% efficiency to end. 798 meters gained. That's a two to three vote type performance, even on a day where you've got so much going on offensively. And I am continuing to sing Daniel Rioli's praises upon his move to halfback. We started seeing it a bit late last season, but he has really blossomed in that role in the first couple rounds of 2022. Nathan Broad had a similar game to short, 86% efficiency with 22 disposals, only three contested possessions, but... He and Short played off each other really well, and I'm just very impressed by what Richmond is able to do without so much of the old guard. You know, this is the sort of game that makes you think, man, maybe even when the window closes on this core, maybe that window already closed some, but there's clearly a bright future for this young group of Tigers. I was really impressed with how they played, and I think that's a very positive reflection on Damian Hardwick's coaching, to be able to adapt so quickly and have this team ready to go when they had changes very late in the week, too. Lessening the significance of the passage of time, for sure. The significance of the passage of time. For the last time this week, we are bringing out the RU Screwdometer, and this is for GWS. Now, the Giants are 0-2, having lost to Sydney Derby and now lost to Richmond. Benjamin, I'm going to let you start. Where do you put the Giants on the RU Screwdometer? I'm putting them higher than the others. And I think that even with Leon Cameron's coaching savvy, the fact that their defense is not strong already and that 
Phil Davis is going to be out for not a short length of time is leaving me with even more doubts about their abilities. And yes, Toby Green is coming back, but having him out for the first five games is really losing a lot of chances in those times. There's no doubt the Giants are able to make a run late in the season. That's what they did last year. But I'm at a seven. I'm actually going to go higher than that. I'm going to give it an eight. I think they're really in trouble structurally. Their defense is clearly a weak spot, even with Phil Davis, who's really going to take away a guy one-on-one, but isn't able to do some of the, you know, Tom Stewart, Patty McCartan type stuff where he can really control that whole back 50. That's not a knock on him. That's just, he's a different style of player, but they're in a really bad spot. It doesn't get any easier the next few weeks. They host the Suns, which is kind of a make or break for, I think, both those teams in a lot of ways. Then they go to Fremantle. Then they take on the Demons at the G. So this this could get really rough for them. They've also got a trip to Adelaide, not too far off, game against Geelong. I think they're in a really tough spot, and I don't think it's going to get much better unless Tim Taranto, Stephen Canelio, and Harry Himmelberg suddenly play like they're four years younger. I mean, they're still solid players, but they aren't going to be able to quite put the team on their back like they were able to in years past. In fact, they look like a team to me that they're going to have to win some super high-scoring games because they have given me no reason to believe that they can stop anybody. I think part of the reason that I was a little less harsh on them was the quality of their opening opponents, but that stretch coming pretty soon, even with Toby Green returning in the middle of it, is definitely cause for concern given the sorry state that their defense was already in, and Sam Taylor and Connor Iden can only do so much. The other team that really disappointed this week, aside from the Giants, was a team that I've been hyping up a ton, a team that outside of the two clubs that we follow individually we've probably talked about the most, and that's Fremantle. The Dockers hosted St. Kilda in the final match of the week and shockingly lost at home by 10 to a Saints team that I was really low on. Fremantle, 8-7-55, St. Kilda, 9-11-65. The bad news came before the game when it was revealed that Nat Fife is going to be out up to six weeks after undergoing back surgery. The Dockers did not play well in the first half at all, and yet they were the accurate kicking team and had a 12-point lead at the half. was kind of an interesting role reversal. They led 18-4 after a quarter, and then 31-19 at half because St. Kilda had kicked just 2-7. And so at that point, I'm thinking, and I think a lot of people are thinking, all right, they're up 12 at the half despite playing pretty poorly. Now if they go out and just play a half-decent second half, they're in great shape. And instead, for the second game in a row, they turned in a complete dogshit third quarter. And unlike last week against Adelaide, they couldn't recover. They got outscored 39-9 in the third. St. Kilda kicked six goals in the third. Max King took over. And then the Dockers did make a push in the fourth and then kind of seemed to go flat for a couple minutes at the worst possible time. And we'll elaborate on that more later. But Benjamin, what were your takeaways from this game? My takeaway for St. Kilda is, holy cow, Max King actually kicked accurately. He bagged four, as did Jack Higgins, and really three Jacks stepped up, and Hayes wasn't one of them despite what he did last week. It was Higgins, Sinclair, and Steele. They all really started to heat up, and along with Max King, took the team upward with them. You were definitely onto something when you told me that 
The simple stats favored Fremantle after the first half, but St. Kilda was clearly better. I pointed out that Fremantle had the edge in efficiency, but St. Kilda reeled that back in overall in the second half and really were much more efficient in the inside 50, and they ended up winning all the stoppage stats, and they dominated center clearances 14-4 to for the contest, so... That was a big starting point for them, especially once Sean Darcy went down for Fremantle. Darcy came back in at one point. He was out early in the third, tried to reappear, and then not that long after realized he couldn't keep up. He was done. He was replaced by Nathan O'Driscoll, so kind of odd circumstances for your debut or debut, as some will say. At least he actually played in his debut, unlike Tex Wangany for Essendon. O'Driscoll actually got a goal when Fremantle had been pushing and pushing and pressuring, and it looked like the floodgates were going to open for the Dockers early in the fourth, and instead they stayed in that, you know, 16 to 18 point hole. O'Driscoll finally scored off of a setup by Heath Chapman with 6.05 left, and at that point it was 59-49, and it seemed like, all right, here comes Fremantle, they're going to do this thing, the levy finally broke. And instead, over the next couple minutes, they just went completely flat. And Max King got a fourth goal that all but put the game away. It was such odd timing because it seemed like at that point, Fremantle had all the momentum. And then they kind of slowed things down for a minute. It was like, are they tired? Are they just trying to regain their legs? Because it seemed like considering the time, considering the situation, it made too much sense for them to just keep pressing on. And all of a sudden, it stopped. The Saints capitalized on it, and that was it. Now, obviously, like I said, the three Jacks played really well, three of the four Jacks. This group ends up carrying St. Kilda to heights that haven't been reached in a while. Maybe they change the team's name from the Saints to the Jacks. I think that would actually be pretty awesome. It's like the Cleveland Naps or something. (laughs) Or St. Peter's playing at Run Baby Run Arena. A couple of guys that stood out to me for St. Kilda, whose stats maybe didn't quite do it justice. Tim Membry couldn't kick straight, kick 0-3, but did a good job dictating the pace in the first half. And then once King got going, he was in a less prominent role, but nonetheless, still someone who, whether he's on or off the ball, is going to affect the play. And I thought Jared Leonard had a great game. The numbers, pretty pedestrian, 18 disposals, but from the way he kind of started things, sort of inbounding starting plays after a behind or after a ball went out on the full, really seemed to provide a steady hand at a point when the pressure was really building in Fremantle's favor. Also just wanted to highlight Dan Butler for the couple key score involvements that he had. He got St. Kilda's first in transition about five minutes through the second quarter, and he crumped to Higgins for another goal that made it 49-39 to in a third. And even though he wasn't, you know, a player that made the game for St. Kilda, Messiah Wanganin Miller had an involved debut with 13 disposals and over 200 meters gained and a couple of tackles as well. So the Wanganin pedigree did get their time this weekend, just not with Tex. The Fremantle small forwards seemed to really, really struggle. Now, some of that was just in the first half, the ball wasn't coming their way, but they didn't do much to impact the game at all. You hardly heard from Michael Frederick. Bailey Banfield was pretty invisible outside of the first quarter. Sam Switkowski really struggled. From the midfield, Caleb Zarong had a pretty rough game. He ended up with 20 disposals because of a flurry of handballs, but 
he was much more quiet than he needed to be. Rory Lobb was really the only forward for Fremantle that I was impressed with at all. Banfield certainly did not impress. Neither did Travis Collier. He's had the ability to take Fremantle forward. He's had a couple good moments, but the moment that stands out to me from him is just his indecision and inability to get the ball on the boot near the end of the game. I think the game was out of reach by then. It was over barring a miracle. But it's still the moment that is salient to me. And then Blake Akers' play these first couple weeks has not fit in AFL side. Andrew Brayshaw did have a pretty great game from a statistical standpoint. 40 disposals, 10 marks, 8 tackles, though he only kicked 1-2. It was a very nice one, though. It's interesting, after a Fremantle loss, there's hardly any discussion about kicking accuracy. It's more that they just, at times, looked flat, they looked uninspired, and they just got outplayed and outmuscled overall by a St. Kilda team that may not have the speed that a lot of teams do, but they've got a lot of size and physicality, and that proved to really overwhelm the Dockers. I also thought it was a very, very poor game for Jordan Clark, who looked really nice against Adelaide. This was a step back for him. He had what I first described, and then broadcasters also described word for word as a brain fart on a goal kick that set up a Higgins goal in the second quarter. He had a pretty lousy game altogether. It was a really disappointing performance for Fremantle when the Dockers should have been in great shape to start 2-0, even without Fife, even without Mundy. Where do you stand on Fremantle after this contest? I mean, definitely our expectations for them have been taken down two, three notches with their struggles in getting home against Adelaide, even on the road, and then whatever it was that they turned in today and really deserve no higher than a D grade for. They are clearly, you know, without some big pieces. Five remains out and appears that he'll remain out for a longer term. David Mundy was missing because of protocols. Matt Tavener is still a round or two away. Where do you place them in the scheme of things? This is not, you know, a legitometer or an are you screwedometer, but it is certainly a read that I want from you on them. I will mention Justin Longmere made it sound like there's a good chance Taverner plays in round three. Excellent. I'm just underwhelmed. You know, the performance against Adelaide, you can throw out all sorts of reasons. It's round one. You're on the road. It's an interstate game. I mean, just about every road game they play is an interstate game other than this coming week. Joshua Shelley went off. But this was a disappointing performance, and I think what summed it up to me was when they were able to generate some momentum finally. I understand that there's an adjustment period to playing without not just Fife and Mundy, but then Darcy going down. But what really stuck out to me was they had all the momentum building. They were starting to get comfortable. The floodgates finally opened on the O'Driscoll goal. And then a minute later, they just stopped. That really said something to me about just misfiring and seemed like a lack of structure, a lack of situational awareness. I don't know if that was from the coaching box. I don't know if that was from the players. But at that point, you're down 10. You've got about five minutes left. You have all the momentum. Why are you slowing the game down and taking the air out of the ball as if you're the ones protecting the lead? I am going to chalk up a bit of it to misuse by the coaching staff. I did not understand at all 
how they positioned Frederick. It seemed like they were thinking he's a good four inches taller than he actually is, and they were expecting him to take these hangers when he's someone that has really thrived on the ground. It seems like, you know, there's a lot of raw talent there in purple, but it just doesn't seem like it was used properly in round two or in round one, for that matter, for a lot of them. The onus is on Log Viewer to help get things together. I'm still a believer that from a talent standpoint, this Fremantle team is obviously top eight quality. I'm just very underwhelmed and disappointed by this performance, but I do have to give credit to St. Kilda. I don't think they're a super talented team. They're definitely not one of the faster teams. They do have a lot of size and a lot of muscle and a whole lot of guys named Jack, but I don't think they're a particularly strong squad. And I think that losing a home game to them when they just had to travel 2,500 miles is a major, major failure on Fremantle's end. And they're going to have to find a way to compensate for that at some point. That could be the sort of game you look at at the end of the year. You know, why didn't we finish a spot or two higher in the ladder? Whether that be the difference between, you know, 7th and 6th and playing a home game or ninth and 8th or whatever it may be. This is one you're going to look at as one that slipped away. They've got a chance to rebound next week with the Western Derby. Then they host the Giants. But this was a huge missed opportunity. And not only that, it was one where just the form wasn't there. Again, when you get into halftime up 12 despite playing like shit, you're thrilled. You're thinking, all right, now we go. We pick this thing up third quarter and we take off. And instead, they got outscored by 30 for the quarter and everything just fell apart. It was not what I expected at all. And again, it wasn't that they kicked poorly. Their accuracy wasn't the issue. St. Kilda was a less accurate team, especially in the first half. That third quarter obviously did counter some of that. You know, Max King going off and scoring three in three minutes was nice to see, especially just to see him get over the yips and to get to a point where it's not going to be hanging over him for the entire season. But I look at this more than anything as a huge missed opportunity for a Fremantle team that has the talent to be right there with anybody, especially for this to happen at home, too. St. Kilda seems like one of those very streaky teams based on, you know, whether or not they're Jax and Max are on that night. They clearly were not against Collingwood, and they were in the West, which doesn't make much sense to me, but that's how it went. I mean, Collingwood definitely did pressure them more, and so I think that's something to go off, but I want to see St. Kilda be able to put this performance together against, you know, the Brisbane Lions, maybe, and come home by more than a goal against them before I can say, all right, I believe in them. For Fremantle to finish with 55 points against the St. Kilda defense that gave absolutely no resistance the prior week against Collingwood is maybe the most surprising development right up there with GWS getting killed off center bounces against Richmond a week after they dominated those. You know, if you look at the little matchups that went on within games and things like that beyond just the final score, that was something that you didn't see coming either, right? No, sir. Before we go, just going to tie up a couple loose ends. Nominees for Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week are out. We're recording this a day after the rest of the show. Sue us. First off, round one's Mark was given to Tom DeConing of Carlton. I thought it should have gone to Joe Danaher. The Goal of the Week was deservedly given to Fremantle's Michael Frederick. 
The nominees for round two are Mitch Hannon from the Bulldogs using Mitch McGovern for leverage and then grabbing it on the second effort. Then Matthew Parker for Richmond, leaping over Nick Haynes of the Giants. And then Callan Ward with kind of an over-the-shoulder catch, despite some contact from Marlon Pickett. I'm going with Mitch Hannon here. Benjamin, what say you? I would be more completely sold on Hannon had he been able to mark it on first ever, but I'm still more impressed with Hannon's than I am with Parker's. And Ward's was no doubt impressive in its own right, but I think as Americans, we're just kind of used to seeing those sorts of over-the-shoulder things from American football. And we were really surprised when Sam Walsh won the mark of the year for 2020 in a contest with an over-the-shoulder. I mean, he did endure some bigger contact on that, but it definitely caught us off guard. Looking toward goal of the year again, Michael Fredericks tap over Andrew McPherson and the soccer there. We thought that would be tough to beat, but we both think that one of the nominees for round two may have outdone it. Mitch Hannon was nominated not only for mark of the year, but for goal of the year. He had a big left snap from the left pocket against the Blues. Holly Henry snapped his second nomination of the year because that's kind of the player he is. He did something that was reminiscent of Eddie Betts' 2016 goal of the year. He kept it alive on the left boundary, then snapped for goal on the right. But Ethan and I definitely agree that Toby Curvis deserves this week's honor. He kicked it out of midair. First, he tapped it off of, I believe it was a throw-in or ball up? I think it was a throw-in. Then Isaac Cumming of the Giants tapped it, and then Nancurvis kicked it out of midair and threw the goal. It was a terrific play. And especially from a Ruckman, and the fact that it happened in his 100th game, too, makes it all the more special in that moment. Kind of surprised that Buddy didn't get one of the nominations just out of sentimentality, but honestly, looking at the plays... Kind of glad he didn't, because Buddy's thousandth goal is a spectacle on its own, and it will get all the press that it needs for years to come, because we probably won't see anything like it for a long time. Plus, it was a pretty standard goal, not just within footy overall, but the type of goal that he regularly scores. So it was fitting that he got it in his typical style rather than with something fancy. But in terms of the wow factor, if we're just looking at the plays themselves in a vacuum, it's Nan Curvis and it's not close. Well, with that, I think we've got a lot of food for thought heading into round three. We're going to be previewing round three. We're going to be recording that tomorrow before Benjamin heads back to Berkeley so that we can get another in-person recording session in. It works better even if we won't know as much in terms of injury situation and things like that. It works better from an editing standpoint, from a sound quality standpoint, from a conversation standpoint. So we'll be back at it with that tomorrow. And who knows, maybe we'll record another one of those little bonuses. Maybe we'll have, you know, a round three list spooktacular. Hopefully that's not necessary. Hopefully we don't have another team missing, you know, 12 guys or whatever to COVID. But wait and see. I think this round three set of games was super intriguing on the surface even before this season started. And now that we've got the context of two rounds, including a few upsets... Things are going to be really interesting, so look ahead to that preview. That includes Adelaide Showdown, Western Derby, Bulldog Swans, Magpies Cats, and so much more. So we will come to you with that in just a couple days' time. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been Americans Watching the Footy. I'm Ethan Castle. You can find him at Castle Media, Castle with a K. I am Benjamin Castle at BenjaminHK01. 
Together, we are on Twitter at Americans Footy. Talk to us there. Talk to us on any of our platforms. Follow Brian at Tap Named Brian. And we look forward to speaking with you over those platforms or speaking to you like this again very soon. I'll make sure to give us the five stars on Yelp.